From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And here we are on Christmas Eve Eve. The big story is still the clearing of that blockade of the UK travel links, specifically the cross-channel route to France. Now, there were dramatic pictures of the thousands of lorries parked neatly on an RAF airfield, warnings of shortages of fresh produce. But now it is beginning to clear, as the French have agreed to let people in with negative Covid tests, but the backlog is a big one. And all this because the UK is experiencing the rapid rise of the new variant of the virus, which seems to be more easily spread. Now, on that point, ministers are briefing there could be an expansion of the Tier 4 areas of England as soon as Boxing Day. So that's something to have with your turkey. And the terrible cliché, a perfect storm, is being heard as the prospect of a no-deal Brexit hitting the country just as it's being laid low by a new virus surge has led some even amongst Brexiteers, to ponder extending the transition period in search of a deal. But Downing Street says no. So what is the state of play on all this just 48 hours before Christmas? Well, let's bring in Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Therese, welcome back to the programme. The headline on your uh, column at the moment is uh, Christmas gets cancelled for Boris. Um, Is this perhaps a crisis too far for him, do you think? Well, I think all depends really on what happens in the next few days, doesn't it? Because you could construct a scenario where he gets a Brexit deal um, Christmas. We, you know, we muddle through Christmas and the vaccine rollout accelerates. And by the spring, you know, it's all a, 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 a hazy, bad nightmare. But, you know, it could equally go the other way if there is no Brexit deal, uh, if the entire country goes back into lockdown, uh, there are more closures, more uh, business failings, more pain. And so, you know, I think it is a really uh, important and, and, you know, crucial moment for the prime minister because the voters in the north of the country, those red wall voters that swung to the conservatives in December 19th, one of the main points of attraction for them was that he's decisive, he's a leader. And that's something that the last few months have just been chipping away at. You know, the question of whether is he following the polls? Is he, is he being influenced too much by special advisors? Are backbenchers pushing him one way and then the other? So I think this is a, a, the moment where he has to show decisive leadership. And 
is feeling the pressure from uh, both sides, at least on the Brexit front. No, it's very interesting you mentioned that because we, we had someone earlier in the week in Bloomberg Westminster, an opinion pollster, who'd been back to the red wall, uh, now blue wall uh, constituencies, of course, and they were asked to say uh, what animal they saw Boris Johnson as, and many of them said a sheep. So a sheep, yes. Well, that was driven back and forth. at, at Britain Thinks, who's, um, who's brilliant on this and has just, just actually written a book on red wall voters. And I think this is something that um, the Conservative Party is going to have to look at very carefully because who wins? those that part of the country governs Britain and no there's not an election coming up anytime soon but you know these are voters that uh, Boris Johnson ignores at his peril and interestingly you know he, they are not that fussed about what kind of Brexit deal comes out of this um, they're unlikely to scrutinize it or to be worried I think only fish really reaches their radar screen which is quite interesting because you know most of them won't, won't you know, no fishermen um, or you know people in the fishing industry, but it's an issue that resonates. But I think if he got a deal, he wouldn't have a difficult time selling it to these voters. If he doesn't get a deal, it's going to be a lot. Um, it's going to be a lot harder. Of course, he would try to portray that as standing firm and being decisive, but I'm not sure that that people will be that comfortable with that option. Yeah, because the fascinating thing about this is the coalescence of the two threads of of the virus impact and the curbs that are being put on that, mainly on the southeast London, the east of England at the moment, but but also uh, in the past certainly have been very badly affecting the northern areas of the country as well. And that coming at the same time uh, as this Brexit crisis, as you say, a moment perhaps for decisive action, but is he the sort of person who now, without Dominic Cummings uh, influencing him, at least we assume not, can actually make a clear decision on all this? I think what we've seen throughout the pandemic is that Boris Johnson struggles to make decisions which involve disappointing one constituency that he cares about. So, um, you know, the the choice between locking down parts of the country um, or allowing um, fewer restrictions so that economic activity could persist was one that he really struggled to make. And we saw this seesawing back and forth. Um, I, I think he's now come to the view, uh, particularly with the vaccine now being rolled out, that there is no avoiding um, higher levels of restriction. And so now we're I think heading toward tier four being rolled out in parts of the country, which are not in tier four right now. And, you know, the, the big question that's going to come on the horizon very, very soon is schools and January. And there will be a huge backlash from conservatives, particularly if he can't reopen schools on time in January. It's something the government has said it is determined to do. But, you know, what happens if they can't get testing out in these schools if uh, levels of infection are high? So, you know, there is um, uh, there is a lot of pressure on him now to be decisive, but that involves disappointing, um, you know, in many cases even his own backbenchers and uh, that that's why this period is just so tricky for him. Uh, one very fascinating piece that was out this morning in the Independent from Tony Blair, uh, predecessor, of course, in Downing Street, uh, with a somewhat mixed reputation for other reasons, but uh, but suggesting that what the government really needs to do is to push everything into getting the vaccines out there. He, Tony Blair says, why not by February have most of the population vaccinated, and that's the way forward. Uh, is Boris Johnson likely to take that on board, do you think? We, I mean, it's an interesting argument, isn't it? Because he, the, the point is that the first dose of the vaccine delivers most of the uh, defensive 
you know, defensive power. And so why not, you know, why not vaccinate as many people as possible now? Why not even uh, allow people who have a higher chance of transmitting it to be vaccinated, not simply going by age group? Um, you know, I, I think Johnson w- w- won't hesitate to sort of, um, you know, a- ignore Blair's advice in, in one sense because it comes from Tony Blair. But on the other hand, you know, there are others that are saying this as well who have medical degrees and I think at some point he, you know, that will come up in um, in media questions, and he's going to have to engage with that. What happens if you don't take the two doses uh, as close together? And the fact is that during these trials, they, they didn't trial, uh, as far as I know, dosing with a very long period of separation between the first and the second dose. So one you know, counter argument is the doses should be delivered as they were as they were trialed because that's what we know is safe and effective. Um, but, you know, the argument is now out there, and there's no question it's a race against the clock to get the vaccines out. And uh, at the current pace, it's pretty slow. Let me ask you a question about Boris Johnson's own position in a way on this, because uh, he's he's a prime minister who commands that uh, thing that so many would have liked, uh, an 80-seat majority. Um, he's someone who probably doesn't have reason to worry about a leadership challenge unless at this point... Does he? Are there enough voices inside the Conservative Party who might want to take him out of number 10 uh, if he gets it wrong on either Brexit or on the virus? That's an interesting question. I don't feel that the threat to him is imminent. Um, it doesn't feel like that moment that, um, you know, we, we saw with Theresa May or even other prime ministers where they've just, you, you just know it's sort of hopeless. And Johnson is a tremendous, uh, you know, he's a tremendous facility for coming back from periods when people have written him off. But what we have seen is that that 80 seat majority is nowhere near as, uh, you know, as, as, powerful and as unified as we thought a year ago. We've seen uh, caucuses and uh, pressure groups form within the backbench, and they voted against Johnson on legislation, and they will do so again. So whether it's on China, on lockdowns, um, on you know northern, uh, a northern powerhouse or rebalancing the economy issues, we will see groups within parliament exercising more and more uh, authority. I think very much depends on how the next few months uh, pan out. Again, if there's a Brexit deal, if the vaccine rollout is going well, if people are feeling more positive, we could see Boris Johnson you know, back on the front foot, the more optimistic Johnson, making plans for the future, uh, setting out a kind of visionary agenda. Uh, if he isn't able to do that, those backbench um, you know, rebellions, I think, will get louder and louder. And at some point, uh, they could threaten his uh, ability to remain as prime minister. The Tories still have a few years before the next election. They've got a potentially viable other option. And, you know, Rishi Sunak, if, uh, um, you know, if we're to believe, uh, you know, all of the, the sort of whispers uh, of support for him. So it's, it's not um, a threat that he can completely dismiss. Uh, very briefly, if you would, any opportunities for Labour in this? 
I think the Labour Party is in a very difficult position because all they can do is oppose. They're not really proposing anything. Keir Starmer has established himself as credible, as professional, um, as, as good in Parliament, but nobody's really clear what the Labour Party stands for. And until they make that clear and until that cuts through again to these red wall voters, I don't think he has a huge amount to worry from for, from Labour. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Well, a government fund set up to help companies process customs paperwork after Brexit is running dry. The HMRC say they've allocated almost all the money from the customs grant scheme, an £84 million programme to fund staff training and setting up new IT systems. Trade between the UK and the EU faces severe disruption if the post-Brexit paperwork burden can't be managed. Trucks arriving at the border risk being held up by customs officials for having the wrong documents risking 7,000 truck-long queues at the border. What we saw at Dover in the last few days uh, might be put into the shade by that. Meanwhile, Tesco has told shoppers they can only make three purchases of eggs, rice, soap or toilet roll amid fears that panic buyers on empty shops. The supermarket giant says in an email to customers yesterday it was introducing the temporary limits on certain essentials, quotes, to help all customers have access to these products. Tesco CEO Jason Tarry said... It still had good availability on fresh products imported from France, such as lettuce, cauliflower and citrus fruit, and urged customers to shop as you normally would, citing strong stock levels. And lastly, something from geology. Scientists had discovered a new sort of mineral for centuries. Mineralogists believe the green crystals were a variation of another mineral, lyraconite. But analysis by a group led by the Natural History Museum of a rock found in Cornwall 220 years ago suggests the dark green mineral has a different chemical composition. Now they're calling it Kernowite, after Kernow, which is the Cornish language word for Cornwall. Cornwall's got a rich mining history with UNESCO World Heritage status and is known globally for the discovery of minerals. Well, let's now talk about the one person that's exemplified the past 12 months here in Britain. It is, of course, Boris Johnson, the man who got an early Christmas present last year, winning a landslide victory based largely on his bluff, unstuffy personality and his can-do attitude to getting Brexit done. Well, what a difference a year makes. He was himself put at death's door by the beast that destroyed his dreams of a Churchillian triumph, a man perhaps laid low by fate's oldest trick, giving someone what they asked for. A writer who's taken on the biographies of some of the most complicated and controversial figures of recent times, including Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn, is Tom Bauer. His latest book is Boris Johnson, The Gambler, and Tom Bauer joins me now. Tom, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Boris Johnson is a gambler, clearly, in the sense that he's taken a lot of risks, not least, of course, this year. But just getting into power was a risk, because obviously it was a very difficult thing to get Brexit done. And it has proved so, of course, with the advent of the virus as well. Has his gamble failed? No, not yet. Uh, good morning. Um, no, I mean, I think that the, he is, the gamble continues. Um, if he gets Brexit done uh, before the end of the year, and if the vaccines come on stream, uh, the AstraZeneca stuff and the rest, 
next year. I think by uh, the summer, he'll be looking much better. Um, of course, he is a gambler. He's a man who constantly takes risks. Um, and I think the negotiations with the EU at the moment is just part of that risk-taking. They were pretty shocked, I think, that it wasn't an easy negotiation as with Theresa May. Well, the interesting thing with your, your book, you take on the whole man, his history, his background, what he's done, his character. How would you describe Boris Johnson, say, to someone who'd never heard of him, never met him, uh, never even seen him on television? How, how would you describe him? Well, i describe him as a, a tough, intelligent, um, somewhat reckless man who has got uh, amoral views about relationships with women, who is hugely determined, very ambitious, um, and knows how to pick himself up. Uh, whenever he's knocked back, and he has been many times in his life, he finds a way for resurrection. And that is a quality which I think he learned from a very, very tough childhood, which I describe. And then his enormous sporting interest. He's a great man for leading the pack in rugby or the war game or hitting hard at tennis. He's a man who takes no hostages, um, who has got unbelievable confidence in himself, but at the same time, and I think this is his strength, is self-critical and brings into his entourage people who are cleverer than him, people who have qualities which he doesn't have, so that he can um, see the light, so to speak. And that's very unlike his predecessor and many other people in business and politics where they don't like people who are clever them around them on the board table or in the cabinet. They, they fear being exposed. Uh, Boris has such self-confidence that he can cope with all that. But on the other hand, he has a lot of minuses, and these include his astonishing relationship with women yeah. and his lack of friends. Um, he is a loner, and that, again, is a, a, a strange quality for a politician uh, and has undoubtedly undermined his... Uh, his ability to get support in Parliament and gather people around him who he can rely on. And a strange quality for someone who, when, when, when the public are asked uh, why they like him, if they do, tends to be his his likability, his, his apparent personality. And you, you mentioned a bit of uh, immorality there, but is there also an element of uh, falseness? Uh, because the, the characteristic uh, of Boris Johnson is this bluff, uh, gentleman perhaps uh, with, with with a very can-do attitude but but slightly old-fashioned terminology uh, a character almost from english fiction but is it fictional is that him or is that just a show well i think it's it is a show to an extent i mean i think one of the uh, characteristics he inherited from his father was that uh, if you're light-hearted and crack a joke you break the ice and then uh, can endear people to you and to your argument and that has undoubtedly rebounded on him severely when he's gone to Europe and elsewhere. I think um, there's no doubt, I mean, his optimism about the will beat the, beat the COVID and all the rest of it is all uh, misplaced and um, hasn't, uh, hasn't worked. On the other hand, he is prime minister because he does have those qualities. Uh, people, if you walk down the street with him or travel on the London tube with him, uh, people rush up to be with him because he does have this feel-good factor. He gives optimism. He gives people confidence. He believes in encouraging people, not just the man on the street, but people who work around him. 
So there's good and bad. I mean, the, the alternative is somebody who makes everyone despair and put their head in their hands and creep away. So, uh, you know, you can have one or the other. Is he dishonest? I'm asking that because uh, several people go, who, who have dealt with him very closely in the past, uh, Max Hastings, I think, is one of them, former editor of the Daily Telegraph, of course, describe him as a liar. Do you think he is? Yes, he is a liar. But, you know, uh, you're a liar and I'm a liar. Everybody lies. Um, and it's just what does he lie about? Uh, he didn't lie uh, like Tony Blair did about going to war. And he didn't lie like others have about their financial activities or lie about things of huge importance. He doesn't tell the truth about his uh, adulterous affairs. Um, or, in Max Hastings' case, uh, uh, paying of a debt. Um, you know, it's the quality of the lies. They're, they're not, he, you know, he's not a, a liar in the sense that he has actually damaged the country or damaged confidence in a financial institution, uh, as we saw in Wall Street and the City of London in the past. So, yes, I, I mean, you see, I think the problem with Boris is he is the target of a lot of simplistic criticisms, liar, racist, lazy, uh, can't pay attention to detail. Well, none of that is apparent in the year he's been prime. He's been prime minister. But some might say it was been... it was apparent when he on his path to it. The, some would say that, that 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 he did tell lies or supported lies about Brexit, for example. Yes, I mean, there's no doubt the uh, 350 million on the bus was untrue. Uh, there's no doubt that's good. But you know, in election campaigns, every party tells lies. Uh, just as the uh, Remainers lied too. And Donald Trump lied as probably Joe Biden lied. I mean, it's part of a campaign. The point is that in a campaign, uh, the public has a chance to vote for the liar or not vote for the liar. Uh, That's very different than being a liar in government. Tom, let me ask you, because I always think this is fascinating with biographers. Did you get to like or admire Boris Johnson? Do you like or admire him? I can't say um, I ever get to like or admire really anybody I write about, and I've written 24, 25 biographies by now of all these leading people. The point is, what fascinating, fascinating. Here are people who climb the slippery pole, uh, always have to tell enormous distortions of their past or conceal things to get up and stay up. Uh, the, the odds always are enormously against them, especially in Boris's case. Last uh, last year in uh, May, he was nowhere near uh, going to be prime minister. It all just changed when the election results changed. So, you know, I, he's not somebody who I'd say I'd love to sit down and spend an evening with talking to because he's not someone who gives in conversations. He's not somebody who, for example, I spent a lot of time with Bernie Eccleston, the F1 man. It was a fascinating conversation for six months. I think Boris can do that. Uh, but on the other hand, he's made it, he's defeated all the odds, and that makes it fascinating. And he's now facing the biggest peacetime threat that any nation has ever faced. Uh, and if he gets through it, uh, he'll be seen as a different man. If he fails, then his critics like Max Hastings will say, I told you so. Well, what do you, I mean, he's a gambling man. Let me ask you to be a gambling man. Do you think that he will, that his bet will pay off in the end. Briefly, do you think he will come through? Yes, I do. I think that um, the EU are going to do a deal. I think on fish they'll compromise against what they wanted to do. I think on 
the vaccine. He's been proven right. We, you know, the fact is that uh, Britain started the vaccines because he broke away from the regulations yeah. and put someone in charge who knew how to place the orders and all the rest of it. So, uh, And I think that he will start investing hugely in British industry and all the rest of it. And he'll make it, yeah. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.